All right, guys. For those of you who I haven't met yet, my name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're continuing our series through Exodus. Uh, this week, I have been thinking a lot about our baptism service last weekend. I often tell people that if you want to get a picture of what we're all about as a church, come to one of our baptism services on a Sunday night, happen about once a semester. And I think the thing that I've been reflecting on is just how many stories involved a personal encounter with God. There were just such vivid descriptions of people from all different backgrounds meeting God. And I just thought, you know, I don't want people to ever get the impression coming to this church that Christianity is going through the motions or just coming to church or just attending small group or that we're really all about community or those type of things. Like the essence of what we're all about is we believe that you can know God, that you can encounter him, that he is alive and that he is holy. So that's kind of the big idea that we're going to be talking about this morning is God's holiness. And holiness means that he's set apart, that he's in a category by himself, that he is unlike any other person. And that's both in his character, but also in his power. And my prayer going into this morning is that you would have a fresh encounter with him. Maybe it's a first-time encounter with God, or maybe it's a hundredth time encounter with God, but that you would experience his, his presence as the holy God in a fresh way. So we're going to look at three implications of this reality that God is holy this morning. The first implication is that we, as his followers, are holy. So we're looking at Exodus chapter 19. We're going to look at verses 4 through 9 to start. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before him all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. So God reminds his people through Moses of his miraculous salvation of them again out of Egypt because they, like us, quickly forget about his salvation. And he describes it as him bearing them up on eagles' wings. So he's saying, I came from the outside. You were 400 years in Egypt and like an eagle, I swooped in and I put you on my wings and I carried you out. Don't forget that my salvation is miraculous. And then he says, therefore, if you obey me, you will be my treasured possession. And there's two ways that we could interpret that if. One is that God's making you his treasured possession is 
conditioned on your obedience. So unless you obey God, then He won't love you. So you obey, He loves you, you disobey, He doesn't love you. The other way of interpreting this is to say, God has treasured you by saving you, and as a result of His salvation, you should be who you are. Now, I think that the second one is correct, and let me show you why I think that's true by referencing another passage from Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 through 8. God makes it really clear why He chose the nation of Israel and rescued them from Egypt. He says, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So here's a basic synopsis of this passage. God loves Israel because God loves Israel. He's set his love on them because he loves them. And so this is what God is saying. He's saying, I'm unlike any other God you've ever heard of. I'm unlike any other religion that you've ever read about because it's not, if you do this, I will love you and treasure you. It's, I have treasured you and loved you completely without condition. So the therefore if is not so that God will love you. The therefore if if is because God has loved you. So God's saying, I love you completely unconditionally. Therefore, if you want to experience my love, if you want to be my treasured possession in your lived experience, then you must obey me. In order to experience my faithfulness to you, you have to be faithful to me. In order to be close to me, you have to choose to be close to me. So the way I picture this is like God is standing with his face always toward us, big smile on his face, saying to us, I love you. But we can choose either to face him in faith and repentance, or we can choose to turn our back on him and go our own way. And in one posture, we will experience his love, and the other one, he will still be there loving us, but we won't have an experience of it. Isn't that true in all of our relationships? Think specifically about the most intimate human relationship possible, the relationship between a husband and a wife. So I told my wife 14 years ago that I would never leave her or forsake her. And I told her, I will be faithful whether you keep up your end of the bargain or not. That's what vows are. I love you because I love you. And I'll be faithful to you. Now, her experience of my faithfulness, given that I'm faithful, will either be a great one or a terrible one, depending on what she chooses to do. So if she chose to to leave me, leave our family, commit adultery, go her own way, the intimacy of our marriage would suffer even though hopefully my love for her would not change. And likewise, God is saying to us, I have loved you by making a covenant with you. I've made vows to you. And I'm telling you, you are holy. You're set apart. 
You, church, are my treasured possession. And the evidence of that is my unconditional love for you through the covenant, the vows that I've made to you. Okay, so we have this reality in the Bible that God is consistently telling his people unconditionally, unequivocally, you are my people, I treasure you, I love you. But then we have something that seems like a conflicting message in the Bible. So we have God saying, you are holy, but he also is saying that we are not holy. So how do you like those for the first two points? You're holy? No, you're not. All right, let's look at verses 9 through 15. It says, when Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. So God is saying, I am going to come down on this mountain at Sinai. And there is going to be smoke, and there is going to be thunder, and there is going to be the sound of trumpets. And here's the rules. Don't touch the mountain. Because if you touch the mountain, you'll die. And just to drive it home, if you accidentally let your cow get near the mountain, your cow's going to die too. And so God gives them specific limits. And he's communicating a couple things to them. You are dirty, and you are criminals. So he's saying you need to wash yourself, sort of a ceremonial washing. You need to put on white clothes, and you need to not get near this mountain because don't get the idea just because I'm gracious that I'm not just. And all of you, without exception, deserve to die. And so to approach God's presence is dangerous. In fact, it's impossible for us to approach him in ourselves. Okay, so this sets up the tension of the entire Bible. You have God saying to his people, I've saved you, I treasure you, I love you just because I love you, but you're sinful people. And I get this picture of God. He's like a dad who's a judge. And his son comes to him and confesses to him that he's committed some horrible crime. And so the dad is a just judge. And so he knows that he has to turn his son in for the horrible crime that he committed. But his heart is breaking because this is his treasured possession. And so God, because he is perfect and good, cannot lay aside his justice in favor of his grace. God is both just and gracious. 
And that tension is replete throughout the Old Testament, and it is never resolved fully in the Old Testament. So you will read the Old Testament, and on one page, God will be pleading with his people to repent and to come back to him and telling them how much he loves him. And on the very next page, it will be threatening judgment or more than a threat, judgment will be taking place. And so we begin to ask the question as modern people, why is there so much wrath in the Old Testament? And why did God clean up his act in the New Testament and see how wonderful we are? And the answer is God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what we're doing in believing that statement is we're taking the work of Jesus for granted. See, what the New Testament teaches is that there is way more wrath in the New Testament than there was in the Old Testament. It's just that wrath gets spread out. God's just punishment for sin gets spread out over nations and individuals in the Old Testament, but it's all concentrated on Jesus in the New Testament. Here's what Romans chapter 3 says about this reality. Pretty famous passage, 23 through 25. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're dirty, we're unworthy, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, we'll come back to that word, by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. So here is the New Testament take on the Old Testament. God was letting everybody off the hook. The premise, God was this God of wrath in the Old Testament and He was kind of flying off the handle, is not believed by Jesus or any of the New Testament writers. They look back at the Old Testament and they're like, everybody should have died right now. Look how patient God was with people. Look how merciful he was. In his divine forbearance, here's our new interpretation of the Old Testament, God just passed over everybody's sins. Now, why did God pass over former sins? Paul answers the question, so that at the present time, he might demonstrate his righteousness and justice. See, Jesus' death on the cross is not just a demonstration of the love of God. Jesus' death on the cross is a declaration that God does not let anyone get away with anything. So that word propitiation, it means wrath-diverting sacrifice. So here's what Jesus did when he showed up on earth. God sent his son to the earth to raise his hand and say, I will take the wrath that humanity deserves. So God on the cross is saying, this is what your sins deserve. In other words, you have lived your life in the presence of God. You've touched the mountain that was covered with smoke and trumpets and thunder and what you deserved was to be stoned. And just as you were about to be stoned, Jesus stepped into your place and took the stoning on your behalf. 
So do not interpret the cross to mean that God is letting you get away with bad behavior. Jesus took the punishment that you deserve, but you will never get away with anything because God is just. Okay, so we're holy, we're loved, perfectly accepted. We are not holy, but the punishment that we deserve has been placed on Jesus. Now what? Now we are called to be holy. We are called to be what we are. Look with me at a famous passage, Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. We're going to read through the Ten Commandments. It says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day it is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, The Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbors. So there have been pastors who have done whole series through the Ten Commandments, and that's a great idea. Maybe we'll do that at some point, but today is not that day. So I'm going to give you an overview of what we could take 10 weeks to teach through. So what we see in this passage is that the law of God is a reflection of the character of God, of His holiness, and his graciousness. So the first purpose of the law that theologians have seen throughout history is that the law is like an anvil. It crushes you. The law is not a ladder that you climb to get to heaven. The law lays a smack down on you. And here's how it does that. The law is split up into these ten different commandments, but the law is one reflection of God's character. So Jesus' little brother James said, if you're guilty of breaking one part of the law, you're guilty of breaking all of it. So think about the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Okay, so if you have no other gods before God, maybe you're thinking that in terms of, well, I'm a Christian, I'm not a Muslim, I'm not a Buddhist, so I've never had a God before God. He's my God. But if you think about it a little more deeply, 
And think about, for example, why you lie. So that's another one of the Ten Commandments. And you think about, okay, you lie about your grades when you were in high school, or you add a half inch to your height, or you subtract five pounds from your weight. What are you doing? Well, what you're doing is you're making a God out of your reputation. And so by lying, you're not just lying, you're also having a God before God. Or think about the commandment, do not covet. So he says, don't covet your neighbor's donkey. I don't think I've ever done that, but I've coveted a lot of different things that are my neighbor's. So coveting is just wanting what somebody else has. So you might interpret the whole Ten Commandments like, well, I haven't murdered anyone. I haven't done this. I haven't done this. But what covetousness does is it takes the externals of the law of God and it brings it down to our heart. So what you're really doing when you're coveting is you're making a God out of whatever you're wanting. You're saying, this thing is worthy of my worship. So every time you covet, you not only break the commandment to covet, you also break the commandment to have no other gods before God. And you can actually do this as a thought experiment, walk through the entire Ten Commandments, and you will see that it is impossible to break one of the commandments without breaking all of them. So if you've broken one, it's like your life was a clean pane of glass. And if you've broken one, it shatters the whole pane of glass with just that little nick in the pane. Okay, so the first thing that the law does is it crushes us because there is no way we can keep it. But the second thing that the law of God does is it gives us a beautiful way to live. Okay, imagine a world in which no one ever broke the commandment to not commit adultery. Like some of your parents would still be together. There would, there would be no pedophilia. There would be no sex trafficking. There'd be no one cheating on somebody else. The world would be a remarkably beautiful place if everyone only had sex with their spouse. And no one can deny that. That would be a beautiful place to live. Or imagine if no one ever lied to each other. E even at church. How are you doing? How was your week? Great. It was amazing. Praise the Lord. Come on. Right? Think how much closer we would be to each other if we told each other the truth about superficial things, but also about the real things that are going on in our life. Think if you never wanted what anyone else had, whether it was their grades or their looks, but you were genuinely happy for them and they were genuinely happy for you. And so we've got this dual reality going on in the law. It crushes us, but it's also beautiful to us. It's an amazing way to live. It's not unlike an exercise plan, right? Some of you, you've gotten into different fad diets or 
you're looking at hitting the weights or you're looking at running. And it's undeniable. Like you get a coach on YouTube or you get a coach in real life or you start reading some articles and, and you start to get excited like, man, my life could really change and my life would be better if I took on this certain exercise plan. Or you start like trying to eat only like a card deck size of meat. Why is it a card deck size? I mean, no one eats meat that small right? Like, how do people do this? Or you try to cut meat out altogether, or you're going to go, you know, paleo diet, or all these things. And it's undeniable to you that if you put some of these things into practice, that it would be a beautiful way to live. But if you go too extreme on that stuff, it also crushes you. So here's, what do we do with that? And we could talk about exercise later, but I'm back to the law of God. What do we do with that? It crushes us. We can't keep it, but it's a beautiful way to live. Here's what we do with that. We let the law crush Jesus. That's why he came. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if the crushing reality of the law, the condemnation of it is taken away. All there's left is beauty. All that you have left is a father who loves you and wants what's best for you. What you feel when you walk away from the path of his law is not condemnation, it's conviction. And you have to learn to hear your father's voice in the law. He's saying, I want what's best for you. This is good for you. I know you're not going to get it perfect, but just take the next step. Walk into what I have for you. Paths of joy and freedom. That's what God wants for you, not to crush you. Okay, usually this is the point in the sermon where I let you off the hook, but I'm not going to this time. Because the writer of Hebrews references the passage that we've been looking at, and he uses it in a different way than you might expect. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 25. It says, you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in feastal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking." For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Okay, so the Israelites, they experienced this very tangible, touchable experience of God's terrifying justice. If you touch it, you die. Here's our experience in the new covenant as believers. 
We have been welcomed into the throne room of heaven because of the blood of Jesus Christ. So by faith, we can see this reality. We are seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We are surrounded by the spirit of the saints who have gone before us. We are surrounded by angels. We can almost hear their voices joining us. We can see our Father's face. And our Father is comforting us, yes, but He's also warning us. Don't take the path of least resistance. Don't turn away from following after me. Don't leave the path of obedience for the path of darkness. Walk faithfully with me. Hold on. I know that it's hard. I know that you're going against the current. I know that your friends are putting a lot of pressure on you. I know that there's pressure inside from temptation. There's pressure outside from Satan himself. But keep on this path. Because I have what's best for you. So I think the response for all of us this morning, it's the good old gospel response. It's turning back to God again. See, repentance in the Christian life is not this one-time thing that you did at church camp when you were six. It's something you have to do every single day. Do you know why? You're a sinner every single day. So am I. And the good news is that today is the day of salvation. Today, God's arms are wide open. Today, he will welcome you back. You won't get stoned if you approach his throne because Jesus took that for you. And so all that's left is grace if you will believe it enough to come. So let's, let's just come together right now in prayer. Um, Father God, I, uh, I was a sinner during the first service. I'm still a sinner. I, uh, yeah, I have dishonored you in uh, word, in thought, in desire, and in deed. I am a, a lawbreaker. Um, that, that pane of glass has been shattered a long time ago. And... I can't put the pieces back together. And I pray for that person who has thought for a long time that you are only a God of justice and not a God of grace. And they have seen no way to be in a relationship with you as Father. Would they see this morning the worthiness of your son's sacrifice? that he has been made a propitiation for their sin. Would they hear him say to them this morning, it is finished. I've done it. And would some kids who are lost come home? Would we all come home? Not believing that you are angry with us any longer, but that you are holding your hands out to sinners. Would we have the guts to believe that you love people like us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.